Jemima and I'm going to be bringing the second Bible reading to you tonight, and that's from Matthew chapter 21 and verses 1 to 22, and on most of the Pew Bibles you can find that in 1031. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was, said, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money chargers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. For if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Good evening. Uh, my name is Jesse, as has been said. Uh, it's my privilege to bring uh, this word tonight. So why don't we pray and ask that God would uh, help us as we consider uh, this event uh, in the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks, who wants us to know you, who wants us to know your son. We pray that as we consider him tonight, that we would see him for who he is, as the king 
and the King above all kings. We pray that you would open up our hearts, that we would believe, that we would respond to you rightly in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The crowds flocked. They were desperate to find the best place to see this amazing sight. They'd waited for this moment and finally it had arrived. The crowds cheered, their excitement finally bursting as they beheld her, their queen, the first reigning monarch to visit Australia. Steadily, the car drove on in the heat, the heat radiating both from the sun and from the road. During this whirlwind 58-day tour of Australia, the Queen and Prince Philip visited 57 cities, every state and territory except Northern Territory, they got jibbed, and 70 country towns. 75% of Australians saw her and they loved her. At the end, the Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, wrote in a newspaper article, it is a basic truth that for our Queen we have within us, sometimes unrealised until the moment of expression, the most profound and passionate feelings of loyalty and devotion. The common devotion to the throne is a part of the very cement of the whole social structure. The highly anticipated queen entered cities in a convertible with the top down, travelling across crowded streets, mounted police escorting her. Compare that with the entry of Jesus that we just read. There was no fanfare that had gone before him. There was no official podium for him to come to and make a dazzling speech. There was no mounted escort. He was only mounted on a lowly donkey. The joy that he inspired compared to the rapture of the, the, the crowds observing the queen, the joy that he inspired, the spreading of the cloaks and the branches on the road, which were spontaneous at this unexpected coming of the king. Of the, yes, of the king. But joy wasn't the only reaction to the coming of Jesus. While in 1954 the Queen experienced that common devotion to the throne, as Menzies said, Jesus didn't. The Queen only knew welcome, but Jesus also knew rejection and challenge. And with these reactions, Jesus teaches his disciples about the importance of faith and faith in him. At the end of the day, did it really matter whether the queen was rejected or accepted? Not really. Greeting the queen or not, it didn't matter. It wouldn't have changed anything. People would continue to live their lives. But does it matter how we welcome Jesus? In this passage, Jesus is presented as a king that we cannot ignore. 
we can't treat Jesus the same way that we treat the Queen. We must have faith in him. As we trace this story to the end, we hear the call. Have faith in the coming King. The first scene begins at verse 1, where we see the welcomed King. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem. He looks at the city, and he tells his, his, uh, two of his disciples in verses 2 and 3, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Isn't that an odd request? Why would Jesus want a donkey and its colt? Matthew answers that question for us in verse 5. Have a look. Quoting from Zechariah, he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem as king, but not the way the people expected. You would expect a king to enter the city on a horse, wouldn't you? One that would take the king into battle. And that would fit well with the people's expectations of their Messiah, that he would be a warrior who would come and deliver them from the Romans. But that isn't the king that Jesus has come to be. We already know that. We've seen that. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a different kind of king. The disciples do what he says in verse 6. They put their cloaks on the donkey in verse 7, and Jesus gets on. He joins the crowds that are headed to Jerusalem. In just a week's time, it'll be Passover, the biggest day of the year for the Jews. The crowds see this man who's become famous in the land. In verse 8, they spread their cloaks on the ground before him. They cut off branches to put onto the road, a makeshift red carpet. Even the queen didn't get a red carpet for her ride. The anticipation is sky high. Look at what they say in verse 9. Hosanna! To the son of David, they shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what does Hosanna mean? Well, it can mean a prayer. can be a prayer, meaning please save. But the people aren't really praying here, are they? This is a shout of praise. They are praising Jesus as the Saviour, the King who has come to save. The crowds welcome their King, probably confused by the donkey, but they know that something significant is happening because Jesus is entering Jerusalem. They have a hunch that he's the son of David. And in Jerusalem, in verse 10, that city which was disturbed in chapter 2 at his birth is now stirred, shaken like an earthquake. The crowds announce, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
the king has come to his city in a bizarre way. The queen came in pomp and ceremony. Jesus came humbly. A car with a mounted escort, the foal of a donkey. An adoring crowd. A crowd of anticipation. In this first scene, we see the welcomed king. And in the next scene, verses 12 to 17, we see the rejected king. After entering the city, Jesus gets to work. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is angry about what's going on in the temple. But why? Because aren't they just providing a service for these thousands upon thousands of Jews who've been travelling to get to Jerusalem for the Passover? Now, because of them, they don't have to spend those days also trying to herd an animal to sacrifice. Now they can just come to Jerusalem and buy it. And they don't need to worry about their money because the temple only accepts a certain type of money. Now they can just come, exchange their money, get the right type, just like we do when we have to go overseas. It's all so practical, it's all so sensible, it's all so helpful. So what's the problem? Why is Jesus so upset? Because the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. But they have turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Have they been ripping people off? Is this like the cost of a meat pie and a drink at the footy? Maybe. But there's more to it. Because they aren't simply robbing people of money. They're robbing people of prayer. Because they weren't just providing a service for those who wanted to go to the temple. They were doing this in the temple itself. These animals were most likely in the outer courts. There's no way they'd be allowed in the inner courts where the Jews were. So they'd be in the outer courts where the Gentiles were allowed to be. The one place where the Gentiles could come into the temple learn about God, hear teaching about God and pray to him in the temple. And that had been taken from them. Gentile prayer was replaced with buying and selling. This was wickedness and so Jesus overturned the tables. He turned over the benches, exerting kingly authority over his temple. Apparently the queen threw some tennis shoes and a racket at Prince Philip on their trip uh, in Australia when they were alone. Maybe you saw it uh, on The Crown in, on Netflix. But she never did anything like this in public. Jesus continued to show his power and authority by healing the blind and the lame. In verse 14, the children shouted in awe and wonder, Hosanna to the Son of David! 
they could see who he was. Children could see who he was. But in verse 15, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were indignant at these wonderful things. How blind, how absolutely wicked must these people have been to reject Jesus? Because he has done what they should have done. He has protected the temple and he has shown concern for the Gentiles who are eager to come to God. God had told Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him in Genesis 12 and under their watch, the Gentiles have been kept from God. They have not been able to pray to him in the temple. The children can see who he is. It's obvious he's the promised Messiah. He's taking charge and doing things God's way. And so the children praise him. But in verse 16, the teachers complain, do you hear what these children are saying? They should have been praising him like those children. The way to God was once again opened to the Gentiles. The blind and the lame were healed. God's blessings were being poured down. And they buried their heads in the sand. The very people who should have been the most able to recognize him refused to see him. The queen was welcomed wherever she went, but not Jesus. Jesus was welcomed on the road. There he was the welcomed king. But here in the temple, he's the rejected king. And so he leaves and spends the night in Bethany. And it's here in verses 18 and uh, onwards that we see the powerful king. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Is this really the Jesus that we know? Does that sound like him? Why is he so angry about something that's so small? The thing thing about fig trees is that when there's leaves there's figs that's just how it works the leaves drop off in winter but when they start growing again so do the figs and the figs keep growing all throughout the season as long as there's leaves figs are growing but this tree with its leaves hasn't produced anything just like israel How pious Israel seemed, calling for obedience to the law. They came to the temple to pray. They'd sacrifice. They'd do all the right things. They looked good on the surface level, like a fig tree with leaves. But there wasn't any fruit. They'd rejected 
Jesus. They corrupted their worship at the temple with the cacophony of sheep and cows and, and doves. The curse against the fig tree was symbolic of the judgment that was against Israel. He is their king. But they didn't produce any fruit of faith in him. They were fruitless. And so they were judged. Jesus is the powerful king, more powerful than the queen. The queen can't change a single law in Australia. But with just these words, Jesus is able to change the natural world. In verse 20, the disciples ask, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Beck and I don't have the greatest track record when it comes to plants. We haven't tried very much, and that's a good thing. We've killed herbs, we've killed tomatoes, we're trying desperately not to kill a lemon tree that we've been given for Christmas. But the thing is, we manage to wither plants slowly. Jesus here uh, withers a tree immediately. Verse 21, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. At uni, I had a friend who somehow, so often managed to grab a two-hour free park. These things were rare and they were precious. And somehow she so often got it. And she'd use this verse to explain how she did it. Now, I don't think that she was completely serious, but I don't think she was entirely joking either. Some part of her thought that if she prayed and didn't doubt, then God would give her that space. But what is Jesus really saying? Well, first, he's answering the disciples' question. The tree withered so quickly because he had faith without doubting. He knew who he was and the authority that he had. And so second, if the disciples had the same faith, they'd be able to do the same thing. But more, they'd be able to say to this mountain, the Mount of Olives, they'd be able to say to it to be go, to go be thrown into the sea. But why would the disciples ask that? Why would they want that? Is this just a poetic way about how we'll be able to pray about hard situations and, and overcome them by faith? A lot of good people think that that's what it is. But as we think about this strange imagery, we have to remember that Jesus and the disciples, they were immersed, they knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so we have to ask, is there anything in the Old Testament that sounds a little bit like this, of mountains being moved, particularly the Mount 
of olives. Is, is there something about the Mount of Olives being moved in the Old Testament? Well, there is. In Zechariah 14, verse 4, it says this, On that day, the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Then the day of the Lord will come and all of his holy ones with him. Jesus and Zechariah say that the Mount of Olives will be moved. It's described differently, but that's the general sense, isn't it? Zechariah says Jerusalem will be surrounded by enemies, but God will come. The mountain will be split in two, and then in verse 5, God says, you will flee by my mountain valley. God will save them, and he will judge their enemies. Now, as we read Matthew 21, on our first reading, it is tempting to think that Jesus is saying that if we have no doubt, all of our prayers will be answered. We'll get that parking spot. We'll be healed. Our friend won't die. And tragically, because we think that, we will blame ourselves and our lack of faith when we don't get what we prayed for. We will blame ourselves because we didn't pray the way that we should have. Or, another option, maybe we'll abandon God altogether because we were convinced that God would do it. We knew that we had faith and God hasn't kept his promise. But it's not the promise that Jesus has made. This is a prayer, this is a promise about prayer for the coming kingdom of God. But when will the mountain be moved? When will this happen? There's plenty of debate about this. Was it at the cross when the kingdom of God began? Because Matthew does say that there was an earthquake then. Or is it at Jesus' second coming? Like when, uh, when like Zechariah says, the holy ones will come with him. The event that Revelation describes as being full of, of earthquakes and, and cosmic disturbances. I think it's the second one. I think it's Jesus' second coming. He's just symbolically judged the leaders. And in the story, the cross is coming when sin will be judged in his body and salvation will be offered to all. The kingdom will be opened up to all. On our side of the cross, the kingdom of God is here in part. But we look forward to that day that Zechariah and that Jesus were looking forward to. When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. When the final judgment takes place, the earth is shaken and the salvation that God's people have tasted is finally here in all of its fullness. Jesus is thinking of the day when the kingdom truly does come in all of its fullness And that is what his disciples are to be praying for. When the Queen came to Australia in 1954, she was welcomed 
with open arms. It's easy to welcome someone who doesn't impact your life or demand anything from you. And Jesus was welcomed by the crowds, but he was rejected by the leaders. What a tragic mistake, because rejecting Jesus is not like rejecting the Queen. The Queen is powerless, but Jesus is all-powerful. The Queen is a figurehead. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all nations. To reject this all-powerful King is foolish. Regardless of our acceptance or our rejection of Him, He will still be King. It didn't matter how the people responded to the Queen, she would still be Queen. If we refuse to welcome Jesus, we're not hurting Him. We're hurting ourselves. And so how, how can we test ourselves? What are some signs that we haven't welcomed Jesus the way that we should have? That we haven't produced that fruit of faith that he's looking for. Well, first, are we like the leaders in the temple? Are we unimpressed by Jesus? They saw the wonderful things that he did in the temple, but they wouldn't submit to him. We've read what Jesus did. Are we ambivalent? Maybe we believe it. But has it actually impacted us? The Christian Union in Ballarat just last week or the week before, they had their O week and they did a survey uh, of the three campuses that were around there to see the fellow students' attitude towards Jesus. And they found that 52% of students believed and thought that Jesus really did heal. 52% thought that Jesus really did, in history, heal people. But not all of those people had welcomed Jesus as king. Some ruled themselves instead of having Jesus rule them. Are we like them? We know that Jesus has done amazing things, but have we welcomed him? Or maybe, like the leaders in the temple, we're indignant at what he said. He called the temple a den of robbers, and he, he says that if we look at someone with lust, then we're adulterers. He says that if we listen to his words, we are wise, but if we reject his words, we're fools. He says that everyone will be judged on the words that they say and that hell is a real place. If Jesus hasn't impacted your life, if you are unwilling to accept what Jesus says because you are offended by him, then it's likely that you don't really believe no matter how good 
your life is, no matter how good a person you are, you're like a fig tree with no figs. And one day, one day the king will come and he will look at you and he will look at me and he will judge. It matters how you and I respond to this monarch. If we don't welcome Jesus, then he won't welcome us when he returns. So if you're rejecting Jesus, repent. Come to him now and welcome him. He is the true king. So repent of of your rejection of him. Repent of living your own way without him. Beg for the forgiveness that he freely offers to all who would come. Come to him now as as your king. But for those of us who do have faith in Jesus, we need to ask are we ready to welcome him when he comes back? Because if we have faith, we should be eager for him to come back, shouldn't we? We should be eager to welcome him with that same joy that the crowds had as they saw him entering Jerusalem. Wouldn't we obey him if we had welcomed him, if we were eager to see him? Wouldn't we obey him and, and pray that he would come? Jesus assures us that our prayers for Jesus' return will be answered. And so when was the last time that you prayed that Jesus would return? In year 12, I would pray for Jesus to come back before every single exam. But I have to confess that praying for Jesus for a long time hasn't been part of my normal prayer life. I need to start praying the Lord's Prayer more that His kingdom would come. Are you the same? I get distracted by the so many other things that I can pray for. I get distracted by prayer about family and friends and study. That the most important thing, the coming kingdom of God, gets neglected and forgotten. But for some of us, it's not forgotten. Because some of us actually pray that Jesus would wait. Please, just just wait until after my wedding. Just wait until after I graduate. Just wait until I get a few more zeros in my bank account. Just wait until after that trip. Do we want God to wait longer before sending Jesus? Would we be disappointed if he came now? If yes, then we think too highly of this world. We've forgotten how truly great 
Jesus is, that his kingdom is the place where all the joys of this world pale in comparison. If we truly knew the one that we had faith in, we would be eager to welcome him. We would pray that he would come. To want God to wait so that we can have some experience here is like being so fixated on that picture of the person that you love that you don't look up when they walk into the room. It's like playing in the kiddie pool instead of going to the beach. Jesus is coming. And when he does we will finally see what a silly thing it was for us to want him to wait. If you have faith in the coming king, you won't be disappointed if he returns just before your wedding or just before you hear about your grades or that promotion. You'll be filled with more joy than you can ever imagine. Jesus is the king. One day, he'll come again. He will rescue his people from this world. And so have you welcomed him? Or have you rejected him? When he comes, will you be filled with joy? Or dread? Welcome Jesus. And pray with faith that the King would come. Why don't we pray that now?